There's a, there's a longer gap there when there's a scripture reading. I felt like I should have came up a little bit sooner so there wasn't that gap. I don't know if you were feeling that, but I just drew attention to it. I was feeling it. Um, my name's Jordan. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for coming to church. It's cool to get to be together as a church. Today we're talking about communion. As you just heard, you can keep those Bibles open in front of you. I'd love it if you would follow along with me. And we're talking about communion that was happening in the Corinthian church. And Paul, who wrote the letter of Corinthians, is taking issue with the way that the Corinthian church was taking communion. And so the way that they would take communion together was maybe a little bit different than what some of your experience with communion has been. Uh, It was in homes. And what they would do is they would have these large celebratory feasts. And in the middle of that feast, was when they were taking communion, which was to remember the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the central message of Christianity. Now, the feasts in this were not a problem, and taking it in homes was not a problem. In fact, there's a lot of benefits to that way of doing communion, but there is, let me adjust this here so that we don't got that going on through this time, um, but there is something that Paul is taking issue with, And and it seems like, we're not specifically sure what it is, but we get a few context clues in this text. It seems like one of the things that he's taking issues with is that there were some people that were arriving early and were eating the food before everybody else got there. And by the time everybody got there, the buffet had kind of run out. And so not everybody was getting food. Another thing that he seems to be taking issue with is it seems like there were some people that were taking communion separate from the rest of the church community off in like likely the formal Roman dining room. Some people were taking it over there and the rest of the church was taking it somewhere else. Now those things don't necessarily seem great, but they seem pretty straightforward. And honestly, maybe not like that big of a deal. But I don't know if you caught this, but let me just, if if you missed it, let me just reread God's response to this situation for you, all right? So they're running out of food, taking communion in different places at different times. This is what God says, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. That escalated quickly. That's why many of you are ill, and some have died. So this seems, if we're honest, seems like, I'm not saying it is, it seems like, a completely disproportionate response to what's happening in the Corinthian church. It it seems like that response from God is not in accordance with kind of the amount of wrong that's happening. When you have moments in life where it seems like there's a disproportionate response to something that just happened, there's really two options for explaining that disproportionate response, all right? The first one is, that it actually was disproportionate. It was just way too intense of a response for the given situation. The other explanation is is that you don't have all the information. All right, so the first one is the just way too intense of a response for the given situation. As an example of this, 
This is, if you've ever played pickup basketball at like the YMCA, this is try too hard guy. Okay, so you've all seen him if you've played basketball. It's like a 40-year-old dude. He's wearing a sweatband on his head. He's got sweatbands on his arms. It's just like, why are you sweating this much? And he just doesn't understand that the way you play pickup ball is like 80% intensity. But this dude is going 100% all the time. He's fouling everybody, never calling it, but he's calling ticky-tack fouls on you. And it's just frustrating. It's like, dude, we are not playing for a national championship. You're 40 years old. This is the YMCA. Calm down. Your intensity level is not appropriate for this moment, and it's just annoying. So the question is, is like, is that a little bit of what's happening here with God, where, where his response just seems out of proportion in intensity to what's happening in the moment? Here's the second option when you have a disproportionate response to something, is that you don't have all of the information. So if you were to have driven past my house uh, last summer, sometime in August. I forget what day it was, but there was a certain day that I was out in my driveway in front of my house with my kids. We were unloading something from our car, and here's what you would have seen if you have pulled up in front of the house, is you would have seen me yelling at my son, Grant. And you might have thought, that guy is kind of a jerk, which that might be partially true, but you also wouldn't have had all of the information. Here's why I was yelling at my son Graham in that moment is because he was running towards the street and I saw that there was a car coming. And so I yelled at him to stop because I love him. And because his attention wasn't on the fact that he was in danger. And so I was alerting him to the fact that he was in danger because I am his dad. So I want you to see that God's seemingly harsh response in this text to the Corinthians is not a like YMCA guy, too intense moment, but, as, but is actually God being a good father. He's giving discipline to his kids so that they will return back to him and become aware of the danger that they were in. The Corinthians were not understanding the severity of what they were engaging in, and God is drawing attention to the severity of the situation. And so we need to see the severity of the situation as well so that we don't fall into the same trap that the Corinthians did. So let's go ahead and look at it. If you'd look at verse 17 with me. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One gets hungry, and another gets drunk. Now the thing in this text that this text is famous for, or that the Corinthians in general were famous for, is what he just said at the end of verse 21, is that some of them were getting drunk. They are getting drunk on communion wine, which is not a good look. That's the primary thing that we point out about the negative behavior of the Corinthians, and yeah, it's, it's not great. It's not great behavior, but I want you to notice that it's interestingly not actually the primary thing that the Apostle Paul is frustrated with them about. 
He primarily is pointing out the issue in verse 18 where he says that there's divisions among them. And so what are these divisions? Let's look at this a little bit. In verse 21, it says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. I think the way that NLT translates it is helpful. It says, for some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. So this is, this is a very relatable, simple thing that's happening. If any of you grew up with a large family, you know exactly what's going on here. Now, I didn't grow up with a large family, but I also know what's going on because I was just hungry all the time. And so here's the strategy at a meal is you have the family prayer, right? And as soon as the word amen is said, you go hunch, block, scoop. Hunch over your plate, block with your left arm, scoop with your right arm, right? And you're just trying to get that food in your mouth as quickly as you possibly can. Why? Because you got to get to the seconds and maybe even the thirds before everybody else finishes with their dinner so that you can get more food. There's literally something like that happening here. The people on the front of the line in Corinth are eating so much food that the people at the back of the line or people showing up later aren't having any food. Which again doesn't seem ultimately like that big of a deal, but there's a certain level of self-obsession with that. A certain level of caring only about your needs and, and the concerns for you individually and not recognizing the people around you and inattention to your brothers and sisters in Christ. But there's something else that seems to be going on here. It seems to be that there were some divisions along economic lines. I'm getting this from verse 22 where it says that they were humiliating those who had nothing. So likely what was happening here is they, they would have been meeting for these, these church feasts in uh, wealthy church members' homes because they had the larger homes. And in Roman society, there was a separate formal dining room that held nine to ten people. And those nine to ten people would likely be served by kind of individual servants and they would be given sort of the choice foods. Well, nine to ten people isn't enough to house the entire church. And so likely what was happening is the wealthy people who own the home were kind of seating their wealthy or socially prominent buddies at that formal dining table and then making everybody else eat kind of over in the rest of the house. And the wealthy people or the socially prominent people were getting served and were getting the better portions of the meal and everybody else was getting essentially the scraps. See, the message of Christianity that they had been preaching, the message that we know historically had transformed the world, was a message of radical others-oriented love. It was a message that was breaking down the traditional social barriers of that time. We know that Christianity spread like wildfire through every social category within the ancient Roman world. The, the rich and the poor, people from different backgrounds, different races, Christianity was spreading all over the place because it was preaching a message of equity. And it was a preaching, a message that everyone is united under the headship of Jesus and that all of us are leveled at the foot of the cross. And because of that, we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we treat each other like family regardless of our backgrounds. And that message was changing Roman society and it's what Christians were known for. But here, they're contradicting the message that they were speaking with their words by the way they were living with their lives. 
And Paul and God is taking issue with it, and he's saying, you can't just declare your Christianity with your words, you need to declare it with your life. And in particular, by the way that you love people. And typically, people think that when Paul was writing here, this text about eating and drinking judgment on yourself, this this very kind of intense warning surrounding communion, typically people interpret that as that Paul is writing about how unbelievers or non-Christians should not be taking communion alongside of Christians. But that is not the primary point that Paul is making. Now, quick side note, I know some of you here are not, you're not Christians. You're maybe exploring Christianity, maybe you're you're seeking but kind of doubting and unsure about the truth of Christianity. I want you to know it's awesome that you're here. We're really glad you're here. This is a, a good place to come if you're seeking and asking questions about Jesus. I, I want you to know that communion probably isn't the best thing for you to partake in. Here's what communion is symbolizing is that we believe the, the central reality of life is that Jesus Christ really lived, that he really died on a Roman cross, that he really rose from death, and that really is the only way to God and that it's the central meaning of existence. And so as we take communion together, we're declaring that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of all reality, and that we're coming to him for forgiveness that we only can receive from him. And so if that's not what you believe, it's probably not the best thing to participate in, and that's okay. Just just kind of take that time on your own as we're taking communion together, but we're really glad you're here. Now with that said, that is not the primary thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He is primarily talking to people who are claiming to be Christians, but are disparaging other people with the way that they're living. And what the Corinthians were doing was disrespecting people that Jesus died to save by the way that they were acting towards them. Now, That doesn't seem great, but again, isn't eating and drinking judgment, people sick and people dying, still disproportionate from what was happening? Doesn't that still feel like an overreaction? What's going on here? Well, do you guys remember what it was like in 2019 when the Notre Dame Cathedral was burning in Paris? You remember that moment? It was wild. Paris, like, stopped, and they were outside essentially grieving what was happening. It was on international news. I remember feeling, like, shocked and sad, even though I had no direct connection to that place, but I understood a little bit of its beauty and historic significance. And so it was this really heavy thing for the entire world as they saw that cathedral on fire. Now, here is what is inevitably true of that same day. I don't know what the number is, if it's hundreds or thousands or whatever of people all around the world that same day started bonfires or fires in their home by burning little pieces of paper or newspaper from the previous day. Now, my question for you is, why was that not international news? Why was there not camera crews in the house of some French person starting a fire in his home, in the fireplace in his home, going, French man burns newspaper from yesterday. 
International news, everyone grieves, neighbors are crying. Why? Why did that not happen? Because there's a discrepancy in the value between the Notre Dame Cathedral and yesterday's newspaper. The destruction of something creates more grief and induces a more significant response depending on the inherent value of the thing. The horror of something being damaged is in direct proportion to the value of the thing being damaged. And part of what this is pointing to is at times we can treat people flippantly. We can discard them in our lives like an old newspaper and we can damage them in our self-concern. And that's some of what the Corinthians were doing. They were being flippant with the people that Jesus Christ came to save. But the perpetuation of disunity is horrific because your brothers and sisters in Christ are a masterpiece designed by the hands of God. They're of inestimable worth and value and significance. They're image bearers redeemed by the creator of the universe. They're God's favorite thing in all of creation. They, they reflect Jesus Christ himself and they're worthy of dignity, honor, and respect regardless of who they are. See, God is not overreacting. There's something that he knows that we don't. He knows the, the immense value of a human being. Every human being. And the reality is, is you can't sit in a church service and say, I love you to God, while simultaneously disrespecting his kids. Any more than you could come over to my house and say, hey, we're friends, I love hanging out with you, and be disrespectful to my kids. Like, if you're hurting my kids, you're, you're hurting me. We're not good if you're not on good terms with my kids. It's the same thing with God. And I think there's a little interesting note about this in verse 29. It says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I want to point out that discerning the body portion. Commentators, which are just uh, experts on kind of studying the Bible, who interpret the Bible, they, they argue about this a little bit, about what this means. And, and they kind of ask, is this specifically referring to the symbolism of communion? What's, what's the discerning of the body piece of this? And, and they kind of argue about, is it saying that you need to respect the communion that's on the table as a way of discerning or honoring the body of Jesus Christ, that it represents Jesus Christ, you don't want to disrespect the body of Jesus Christ? Or is it saying that they weren't discerning the needs of the body of Christ around the table, the people sitting next to them in communion who are representatives of Jesus Christ, who Jesus looked at the church and said, you are my body. And I really think the answer is, is both. I think this is genius as, as Paul writes this, is he's saying you don't want to take lightly the, the symbolism of the communion on the table because it's representing the Lord of the universe who came from heaven to earth to die for you. And he gave an incredible sacrifice so that you could have relationship with God and to take that flippantly, to take that lightly is to dishonor and disrespect him. 
But I think he's also saying that the primary way you disrespect the body of Christ symbolized on the table is by disrespecting the body of Christ seated at the table next to you. Because those people are his body. They're his kids, the people that he cares about. And so he's saying you need to discern if you're the type of person who is uniting those people or if you're causing disunity in those people. And if you are causing disunity, it's ultimately dishonoring God. And so what do we, what do, we do with this? How do we apply it? Look at verse 28. It says, let a person examine himself then. I just want to encourage you for a minute to examine yourself, specifically in your relationships with people. Are you currently holding bitterness towards anyone in your life? Anyone at all? Letting unforgiveness start to kind of eat away at your soul even though Jesus has forgiven you. The question is not implying that what they did is okay. I'm just asking you if you've responded to that in bitterness. Or maybe it's not full-blown bitterness, but maybe you have a low-grade resentment towards people in your life. You're not actively unforgiving them or thinking about their sin, but when you think about them, when you come across them, there's just this, this sense of kind of distrust, dislike, distancing. Have you harmed or judged or gossiped about someone in your life or in this church and not asked for forgiveness? Have you been uncommitted or flaky in your spiritual family, the church? Just briefly to explain kind of where I'm getting that one. When, when Paul is pointing out how some of them are doing something as simple as just not leaving enough food for somebody else coming through the door, it, it's not something that seems inherently sinful, but it's just a, a, a self-consumed way of living, a hyper-individualism of kind of getting your own but forgetting about your brother and sister a lack of commitment to the welfare of that entire body that he's pointing out. You have a similar thing going on in your life where you're very concerned about what's going on in your life but aren't committed to the people around you in Christ. Now just to, to check in, how you doing? This is like a little heavy, eating and drinking judgment, kind of this way you be, should be treating people. I, I, I just want to point out, okay, even though that is a little heavy, if you have a belief system that entirely aligns with what you intuitively think about the world, you have a belief system that you made up. Which isn't actually a good way to live. Here's the reality about truth, is it often is beautiful and amazing and you're drawn towards it and you can stand on it and it's so good, but truth is also sharp it starts to whittle you down to bring you into alignment with the reality of the world. And so examine yourself in accordance with the truth. Now, after you've examined yourself, what do you do? Do you just sit in the shame of that? No. Here's what you do. You confess. Verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. What does it mean to judge yourself truly? What does that mean? Well, I think it means that you recognize the sin in your life and you agree with God that it is wrong. And if you're willing to come forward to him with that information, to agree with him and say, I know this is wrong. It's not what I wanted to do. It's not who I want to be. Please forgive me. 
He doesn't have to bring judgment on you because you've already recognized the reality of the brokenness in your life. And so that's what confession is, is it's saying to God, I agree with you about the way I should live. I agree with you that I didn't live that way. And I now want to, by your power, to start to live into what you said is good. And confession is not wallowing in shame. That's not the thing that we're talking about. Confession is saying, this is what I did, but it's not who I am. And that's why I'm able to say it, is because it's not my ultimate identity in Christ. I want to be different in Christ. And so in communion and just perpetually throughout your life, confession is not just the entry point to Christianity, it's the pathway of Christianity. You bring your confession to God, you bring it in communion, and in communion Christ looks back at your confession and says, you're free. There's no longer judgment for you because I took it on myself. You're free. Which we'll have the chance to do that together here in a minute. We'll be taking communion together, and I'm excited for that. But first, I, I want to talk to you guys about a couple things. So this is my, my last Sunday getting to teach at Redemption Church. And some of you are like, isn't this your first Sunday teaching at Redemption Church? I don't know who you are. It's like, that's, that's fair. You're new, and, and I haven't been teaching as much as I was at one point. I've, I've gotten to be around redemption for a while now. My wife and I are uh, heading out to plant a, a church, God willing, a lot like this one in, in West Lafayette, Indiana. We're moving in two weeks, so uh, I'll be gone from, from church uh, next week. I'll be at our, our conference for our college students all around the country. We're excited for that. And then the following week, there will be a little bit of a send-off. And then we're driving to our house, and we're loading up the truck, and we're, we're taking off the, the next day. And I just want to take a minute to tell you what an incredible privilege it's been. Ah, somebody asked me if I was going to cry on this. I said no, but apparently that's different once I actually get in front of you. It has been an incredible privilege to be your pastor. And God has... <clears throat> changed my life through this church in some amazing ways. And I'm just grateful for this church. And thank you for being a part of the grace of God here. Uh, the rest of my life will be shaped by the time that I've gotten to spend with you. And uh, my heart in this moment is to... Uh, just encourage you a little bit and give you hope and just tell you, you can do it. Like, keep following Jesus. And I'm, I'm preaching on a text about eating and drinking judgment on yourself, which is not, honestly, what my first pick would have been. Uh, so I felt torn about that, but as I was praying through that this week, God has consistently throughout the life of this church uh, just brought us, as we teach through the Bible, these incredibly timely words from him that were unplanned by us, but we just said, we're just going to teach through Corinthians, and then he aligns that with whatever is going on in the life of our church. I really believe that he does that. So I think there's two principles that we can kind of pull out from this text. One of them is to live in intentional, loving, unified community. 
And then the second is to interpret the natural, the quote-unquote natural things of this world as the hand of God. And I'll explain to you in a, in a minute where I'm seeing that. But I think of all the things I would want to say to you one more time as your pastor, I don't know if I could think of better things to say to you than that. That as you, as you follow Jesus, I just, I just would love it if you live a life of noticing and loving people and you live a life of noticing and loving God. Really simple, but I think it's a great life to live. So noticing and loving people. This is a little bit what we've been talking about, about how the Corinthians weren't united, they weren't noticing each other. I want you to know that there's a different, more meaningful, more human way to live than the hyper-individualism and the self-reliance of our culture. There's a, a different but beautiful life of committing yourself to this, your, your adopted or like chosen spiritual family that you've become a part of. It's a life of laughter and love and at times pain and trial and tears, but it's a good life lived together. And, and these people sitting next to you, what we're doing here is not coming in to watch some religious show on a stage. We're coming here to be a family, to commit ourselves to one another, to join lives together, to follow Christ when it's really difficult and when it's really good. I, I want you to become a covenanting family that chooses to walk through this life together, not alone. And that's not always easy, but it is good. It's a good life. These are people that are worth living with and dying with. They're people worth doing and sharing life with. Now, that's not realistic for everyone in this room. Like, you probably don't even know all the people sitting around you. But I'm saying, find your few here. And walk through life with them. Don't follow Jesus alone. And fight for unity with them. We tend to underestimate the power of a simple commitment to community. And so I want to invite you into the regular, simple habits of living a life with other people. Choosing to, on a weekly basis, grab coffee with a friend. Choosing to not miss connection group. Choosing to invite people into your home, to have those people in your life that, that they don't even need the invite. It's like, yeah, you just, you just come on over, just walk in, whatever we're having, you can have it with us. Live a life like that. And these little habits that you can implement in your life will change your life over the course of time. They might not seem like that big of a deal in the moment, but over time they can change your life. I remember my friend Nathan Kolopek used this illustration. It stuck with me in my brain about like the power of little habits. He's like, uh, if you miss a shower one day, it's probably not that big of a deal. At least for most of us, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but if you lose the habit of showering, that is going to change your life drastically, right? <laughs> so little habits over time build up. If you miss, if you miss your connection group one, one time, maybe not that big of a deal. If you're consistently flaky in that connection group, that's going to change your life over, over time. Commit yourself to a series of habits of living life within your community. 
I want you to hold on to Jesus and never let him go. And the best possible way that you could do that is by holding on to his bride, his church that he loves, the local church, this messed up, unmature, often unholy, beautiful, spirit-empowered, hope-of-the-world wonder that is the local church. Do life with these people. Commit your life to the church. Both the church, the institution, and the church, the people. And the church can be a messed up place, but that is not a new modern development. That's not some recent insight. The Corinthians were getting drunk on communion wine. They were messed up. But the advice that Paul gives them is not to criticize and bail, it's to love. And so love this community. Second, notice and love God. Look back at verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul here is encouraging them to interpret the apparent natural difficulties that they were having in the world as supernatural intervention from a God who loves them. To interpret some of the sickness or the difficult things in their life as as God is a dad disciplining them, of warning them not to run into the street. But notice, in order to interpret things appropriately as discipline and therefore live better in light of God's kindness to you, you have to interpret the world supernaturally. So we don't believe in an entirely naturalistic world. We believe in nature and the natural, but we don't believe in that as the entirely sufficient explanation for what's happening in the world. We believe in a God who is active in his creation, operating it in accordance with his good will for you, bending the universe for your good so that you could have relationship with him forever. And when you're disciplined by God, see that as the hand of a loving father as you're running into the street, he's reaching out and grabbing you by the back of your shirt and pulling you back into relationship with him so that you'll love him and have hope forever. He's calling you back to himself. And so learn to interpret the world through the lens of a God who loves you and is intervening into your life. He's not distant and abstract. He's near and relational. And he's intervening in the circumstances of your life so that you could have relationship with him forever. Every cranny and nook of this world is bursting at the seams with God. Notice him. I want to encourage you to rediscover an enchanted life, a life enchanted with God. And it's not easy, and it's usually very normal. It's things like going to communion and waiting till everybody gets there so everybody feels included. It's little things like that, but they build up over time where you're learning to see the world through the lens of God active everywhere. Notice him. Notice him in the present. Instead of living in the past of what you wish your life would have been or in the future and the anxiety of what's coming and trying to prepare yourself for what's coming, live in this moment. Feel the breeze on your face. See the person next to you. Look at the wind in the trees and see the presence of God there and worship him. Worship him in this moment, present with you, interacting with you in your life. Notice him. That ultimately is what life is about, is noticing God in the moment and enjoying him, now and forever with him. Live into the loving presence of your father every day, relentlessly, forever. 
That's the good life. God himself is offering you the good life by offering you him. He is the good life. And when you wander, when your emotion and love for God fade, he will pursue you and track you down. He will not leave you or forsake you. And so look for him and you'll find him. He's knocking at the door. Open it for him in your life. Don't give up. Don't give up. He's present everywhere. Learn to see him. All of us are runaway sons and daughters who are being pursued by a loving God. And communion is an invitation back home. Back home to him. And so we're going to take it together now. So it's a little bit different than usual. So if you go ahead and grab your communion cup. If you didn't grab one when you came in, you can head out. There should be, there should be some left. So I'm just going to walk through this, this text. Oh, wow, a lot of you didn't get it. <laughs> it's fine. Go do your thing. All right, so people are going to be walking around for a minute. It's fine. Can we just, can we kind of come back? Um, so I, I just want to walk you through in this text where he describes what communion is, and then we'll take it together. But I do want to give you, before we jump into this, we just read a text where it says that taking communion is a, weight, is a weighty thing. So if you have bitterness or unforgiveness, if you have conflict in your life, in particular with someone in this room, I want to encourage you, maybe don't take communion until you make it right. And if it is with someone in this room, I want to encourage you not to leave this building until you've made it right. Jesus offered you communion because he's not holding any of your sins against you. Do the same for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So don't take this lightly. This is a weighty moment. However, communion is for sinners. That's the whole point. And so if you are in sin, join the club, confess your sin, and receive the forgiveness of Christ through the symbolism of communion. Paul here says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. I want to stop there for a second. Have you ever been betrayed or misunderstood? What did you feel? What did you do? Did you try to justify yourself? Do you try to get retribution on that person? On the night that he was betrayed, here's what Jesus was interested in, not retribution, but restoration. That through his betrayal, he would restore you to the Father. Verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. When he says it's for you, He's not preaching to a crowd in this moment. It's not general, it's very specific and it's intimate. He's, he's talking to John who's leaning on his shoulder. He said, John, this is for you. He's talking to hot-headed Peter who's about to betray him. Peter, this is, this is for you. Redemption, church, what you're about to take is for you. Natalie, it's for you. Communion's for you. Jesus died for you. 
Austin, Jesus came to get you, man. He came for you. Not just this general crowd, like you. He knows where you sit. He knows everything about your life. And he came to offer you forgiveness. It's for you. If you're in this room and you're feeling distance from God because of your sin, he came for you. It's for you. So in light of that, let's, let's take it together. Let's take the body and then we'll, we'll drink the cup after that. Then he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. There's something going on here with, with the cup. So he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. So the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. In the old covenant, blood was also required. It was the blood of the sacrifice of animals and that sacrifice was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. And so they had to keep coming back and sacrificing more and more animals because they kept sinning, and that sacrifice kept being not sufficient for their sin. But Jesus in the new covenant was the sacrifice once for all for many. A necessary and a sufficient sacrifice for you, even for your sin. It's sufficient for you. And in this cup, as he went to pass it to his disciples, the, the cup throughout the Old Testament, it symbolized the wrath, the anger of God towards sin. And Jesus in this moment is saying, I will drink the cup of wrath so that you don't have to. I will experience the cup of wrath so that you can experience the cup of celebration. That's the cup that he offers you. So if you're ready, go ahead and take the cup. His blood shed for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Jesus Christ will come back. And on that day, and for the rest of eternity, we won't need to take communion together, at least in the same fashion that we just took it, because we won't have any sin because we'll be perfected in him, alive together with him. But until that moment, we wait. We wait for him to come back and get us. And we proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that for the people in the room, in guilt and shame, that if they genuinely know you, that you would offer them an assurance of pardon and salvation. And Father, we know that we have been, we have lacked faith, we have lacked love, and there's ways that you are, you're disciplining us because you're a good dad. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see your discipline and not just see it as natural or arbitrary causes or things to complain about, but to see it as the hand of a loving father 
help us to come back to you. Lord Jesus, you are good. You're what we want in life.